Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, and I'm your host. I realize we haven't done this in a while, so if you're new to the show, the basic idea behind it is that each episode, I pull out a Superman-Batman team-up story, and I talk about it. The majority of those are chosen at random from the pages of World's Finest Comics, where Superman and Batman teamed up for 30 years. This episode, we're heading to the 1960s, the land of aliens and goofy sci-fi, because this time we're going to take a look at World's Finest Comics number 114, which has 32 pages and, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was released on or around October 20th. 1960. Appropriate that this came out around Halloween, since it deals with aliens and, well, that's about it, I guess. So, but it's an era we haven't visited too much on the show, and actually this is our first story from the first half of the 1960s decade. The closest we've come to it before this is the alien Superman, way back in episode 3. And even though these two issues came out only about a year apart... Within that year, DC Comics made its final steps into the Silver Age, which we will see and and talk about more in the second segment. But to get into World's Finest Comics, issue 114, the issue has a cover date of December 1960 and a price of 10 cents, and was edited by Jack Schiff. Our cover is by Kurt Swan and Stan Kay, and shows Superman soaring into the air to catch Batman and Robin, who are encased in plastic bubbles. Meanwhile, a voice booms through the scene. Stop! You must obey my command, Superman. If you try to free Batman and Robin, they will die. And it's a nice cover. It it teases a story inside and presents a dramatic scene, which, you know, that's what the cover's supposed to do. The bright pink background is a bit much for my taste, but it does pop out on the stands next to other books that were out around the time, and the costumes of both Superman and Batman contrast well against it, so... You know, fair enough. Turning inside, our 13-page story was written by Jerry Coleman, penciled by Dick Sprang, and inked by either Sheldon Moldoff or Charles Paris. And for those of you who like to keep track of such things, this is Dick Sprang's penultimate issue as the regular penciler of the Superman and Batman feature in World's Finest Comics. The Superman and Batman team-ups in the title began with issue 71. Sprang came on board beginning with issue 78 and penciled nearly every Superman and Batman team-up in the title for more than five years. In fact, from issue 78 to issue 115, only one story is credited to an artist other than Sprang. Uh, But Sprang would go on to pencil five or six more stories in the title throughout the next couple years before retiring around 1963. So we are definitely near to an important time for the title as its first regular artist steps away. But for now, Sprang is still with us, so let's look at the story. From out of nowhere, the spheres arrived to imprison Batman and Robin. Not even Superman could free them as they floated helplessly to a world millions of miles away. But an even greater surprise was in store for the trio when the caped crime fighters became captives of the space globes. So, Batman and Robin are on their way to meet Superman to make a promotional film for the Gotham City Orphanage when, out of nowhere, they are enclosed in clear plastic bubbles and shoot into space. 
Superman sees the commotion and follows, taunted by a voice that he will not be able to free them. He catches up to the dynamic duo in the lower atmosphere and starts to punch the globes to free his friends. But a voice booms out, warning that the bubbles will explode should they be hit with force. To prove the point, a third bubble, this one containing a statue, shows up out of nowhere, which Superman uses as a test, and sure enough, it explodes. Superman demands to know who the voice is and why they've imprisoned his friends, but he gets no answers and is forced to follow as the bubbles rocket into deep space. They soon approach a planet surrounded by a strange green mist. Superman uses his microscopic vision to confirm that the mist isn't kryptonite, then follows the bubbles down to the surface. Once there, he's greeted by an alien named Alba, who emerges from an invisible spaceship. Alba explains that they are on the planet Zoran, and some time ago, the planet was invaded by an alien race called the Baxians, who had taken over the planet and forced the people into slave labor. Alba had escaped and saw Superman's powers could be used to help free them, but he wasn't sure if he could trust Superman, so he took Batman and Robin prisoner in order to lure Superman to the planet. And Superman replies that he does, in fact, have a very particular set of skills. Skills he's acquired over a long career. Skills that make him a nightmare for people like Alba. And if Alba lets Batman and Robin go, that'll be the end of it. He will not look for him. He will not pursue him. But if he doesn't, he will look for him, he will find him, and he will kill him. But Alba says they're still not quite sure if they can trust Superman, and they'll just keep Batman and Robin hostage until Superman gets rid of the Baxians. Superman's like, eh, okay, and follows Alba to a factory on the outskirts of town. Superman charges the factory, but finds his powers are gone due to the green mist, and he and Alba retreat. Later, back in their cave hideout, since without his powers, Superman isn't much use, Alba agrees to release Batman and Robin and take them all back to Earth. But when they leave the cave, they are attacked by a giant dragon monster creature called an Anthcar. Thankfully, given Superman's lack of super, Batman and Robin discover that they have superpowers. Was it the planet's purple sun? The strange green mist? A lucky plot device? They never really give us an answer, but with their newfound abilities, Batman and Robin make short work of the Anthgar, and then head back to the factory to do what Superman couldn't. Once the world's finest and- And don't forget Robin! Yes, and Robin too, plow through the guards, Alba tells them, and, and why he didn't tell them this earlier, I, I don't know, but Alba tells them that the Baxians discovered some of Zoran's old war machines and are putting them back into production. At this news, and much to the surprise of Batman and Robin, Superman runs away. He just runs away. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, we and the characters don't have time to ponder why, as the scene is interrupted by a huge, tentacled war machine piloted by the Baxian leader, Chorn, who is heck-bent on destroying, well, pretty much anything in his path. Batman and Robin spring into action, quickly taking the tank out of commission by hurling nearby statues so fast that they turn to molten metal, turning the machine to slag. Since we've got three more pages left, Chorn isn't ready to give up, and he activates a quartet of huge, saucer-like discs, saying that he will freeze the city unless Batman and Robin leave. And this is where being a podcaster is tough, because I have to make the difficult decision of exactly which Batman and Arnold 
ice pun to reference for a topical yet comedic beat. And I couldn't choose, so you're going to get a montage. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. Allow me to break the ice. You are not sending me to the cooler. Freeze well. What killed the dinosaurs? The ice age. Stay cool, bird boy. Let's kick some ice. Show some mercy. I'm afraid that my condition has left me cold to your pleas of mercy. No! All right, everyone. Chill. It's a cold town. Cool party. <laughs> Can you be cold, Batman? Chill. To perfection. Revenge is a dish best of cold. Winter has come at last. Freeze. Freeze. Ice. Freeze. Ice. Winter fiber. Frozen. Ice. Freeze. Winter ice. Because Winter even Rocky Winter. had a montage. Montage! Sorry. So, Robin, of all people, gets the idea that he and Batman can use super friction on some nearby sand to fashion a giant lens. They then focus their X-ray vision, which is what they called heat vision back in the 60s, through the lens to warm the city and nullify the effects of the freezy ray disc things. Hey, freeze. The heat is on. Sorry, I couldn't resist one more. So... With his latest plan foiled, and still having a page and a half of story left, Chorn is suddenly in a big machine, or tank, or something. They don't really say what it is or what it does, so just bear with me, folks. The only thing they say is that it shoots a MacGuffin ray, which weakens Batman and Robin to the point that they are saying their final goodbyes because they think they're going to die. But suddenly, out of nowhere, a giant meteor crashes into the machine, demolishing it but not killing Chorn, who was conveniently ejected from the top of the non-moving machine, just as said meteor crashed directly into the top of the machine. Seconds later, a spaceship lands, and out comes Superman, who explains that when he ran off earlier, Alba took him into space beyond the effects of the green mist. Superman then used a combination of supervision, super strength, super accuracy, and super gotta end the story somehow to throw the meteor and eliminate the threat. With their leader gone, the Baxians are easy to expel from Zoran, and after some thanks from Alba, Superman, Batman, and Robin return to Earth and talk about how awesome they are as a team. The end. I don't know what to say about this one. It wasn't as bad as the alien Superman but it also wasn't as much fun as the super newspaper of Gotham City or the three super musketeers. I just didn't get the same kind of whimsical enjoyment from it. Superman is an alien, and I don't mind, you know, Superman in outer space stories or tales dealing with Superman interacting with other alien races, but with rare exceptions, those stories just don't work with Batman. And I'm hardly the first person to say that, so I don't pretend to, to claim it as an original thought, but Batman's a character that when you catapult him into outer space and other planets, you're just so far removed from the core of the character who, despite all the, way he's, all the ways he's been portrayed during the past 75 years, 
it just doesn't work very well. It's difficult to tell a gritty, street-level crime story with Superman. And it's difficult to tell, you know, high-adventure sci-fi outer space stories with Batman. And that's nothing against either character. It's just who they are. No one character in fiction is going to fit seamlessly into every type of story. Um, it, now, it can work, and it has worked from time to time, but it's very difficult to pull off. And this particular story isn't one where it was successful. Uh, another thing about the story is the idea of Batman and Robin getting Superman's powers and of Superman losing his powers has been done elsewhere and done better. We, we haven't seen him on, this, on the, uh, the show here, but it's been done and it's been done better. If you're going to give Batman and Robin powers or if you're going to strip Superman of his, do something with it. Don't just have it happen and then carry on as if if, as if nothing's different. The only real effect it had on this story is that it was Batman and Robin doing most of the super feats rather than Superman. Well, I guess it also allowed Superman to throw the meteor from space, but you know he could have done that had he lost his powers or not. So it really had no bearing on the story whatsoever. And I think another reason why it didn't make much of an impact here is, again, going back to the fact that this story takes place on another planet. Stories from this era, <laughs> they, they aren't exactly known for their depictions of character and personality. And, and let's face it, there's not a lot of difference between the voices of Superman and Batman in this story. So when you remove them from their natural elements of Gotham City and Metropolis and go switching their powers around, there's absolutely nothing there to connect to for that character except the costume. So, and, and I do want to stress that this, this wasn't a bad story. I enjoyed it a heck of a lot more than the Alien Superman, which I only keep referencing because it was from the same you know time period. This story didn't have the plot holes or contradictions or absurd logic that that one did. It's Superman and Batman doing what they do. Helping people. Superman started out as the champion of the oppressed. And the residents of Zoran are very much the oppressed. I mean, just because they're blue-skinned and bald and on another planet doesn't mean they're not in need of Superman's help. And yeah, I'll grant you that abducting two people and holding them hostage in order to strong-arm Superman into helping them was kind of a jerk move, but like they said, they didn't know if they could trust Superman. And if you just learned of, of a character with this, you know, infinite power, I can understand them being cautious in the way they approach that. But I also get the feeling that Superman would have helped them regardless, because that's just who Superman is. And Batman and Robin too, to be honest. They don't care who you are. Well, okay, let me let me rephrase that. In their truest and purest depictions, they don't care who you are or where you hail from. If you need help, they're going to help you. Um, overall, it was a simple premise and a fun idea. Both Superman and Batman got their moments of superhero action, and they saved the day with a clever twist. 
At the end of it all, though, it's just a story that I think has more working against it than for it, despite it being pretty solid in the way it was written, given what they were working with as a premise. And hopefully that makes sense. I did really like at the beginning, the uh, the setup is that Superman is in Gotham City because he, Batman, and Robin are going to appear in a film to raise money for the Gotham City Orphanage. It has absolutely no bearing on the story, and it's not even mentioned after the first page, but I like seeing those types of things in stories. I like the era when Superman and Batman could be seen doing those types of things, and it wasn't seen as corny or campy. I mean, looking back at it now, people see it that way. Uh, but at the time, that's just what they did, you know? Um, I guess the only other thing I have to comment on is the art. Unfortunately, this isn't Sprang's best work. As I said at the top of the show, this is one of his final stories. And it's still good. There's lots of energy in the panels, and the action scenes are pretty dynamic. It just doesn't have quite the kick of the earlier Sprang stories we've looked at. Um, Overall, the art just seems a little more flat or maybe a little more awkward than those earlier stories. The opening splash is a good example of really both sides of the art. It's a really dynamic scene of Superman, Batman, and Robin in the midst of a huge battle with the Baxians. Batman and Robin are soaring into the air. Superman is delivering a haymaker to an alien. You know, the, the layout is strong and dynamic, but the figures of Superman and Batman and Robin just don't look quite up to snuff compared to other Sprang stories that we've looked at on the show. Um, a lot like the writing, it's still okay, and we've had worse, but just maybe not the best out there, and possibly a sign of why Sprang would be retiring from full-time illustrating within the next couple of years. Uh... Or maybe it's just an off day for him. I don't know. But either way, it's it's close, but just not quite there. Uh, but that's all I've got. So now it's time for a couple of promos, and then we'll be back for a look at the book's other contents and what else was on the stands. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because as we've established talking about comics you've not read is just dumb yeah and you make me do it every thursday well we've moved have we yes we have outgrown our old location i don't feel like i've moved and we have I'm now grown. moved to two true what was that again two true a kids comics still every thursday at two true you like cheap comic books right well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Yeah. 
If you'd like to read this story for yourself, you can do so by picking up World's Finest Comics Archives, Volume 3, or Showcase Presents World's Finest, Volume 2. And just for a bit of show trivia, I'd like to point out that this is the first story we've covered from Showcase Presents World's Finest, Volume 2. So now we've covered at least one story from each of the four volumes of the Showcase Presents World's Finest, which, you know, it makes no difference to anybody, but I thought it was kind of a neat bit of trivia. Uh, But as for the story, Billy Hogan hasn't covered this story on the Superman Fan Podcast quite yet, but he's around issue 108, uh, so he should be getting to it probably by the end of the year, so keep your ears and eyes peeled for that. Other features in the book include a seven-page Tommy Tomorrow strip titled The Human Space Dragon, and that's by Jack Miller and Jim Mooney. And there's a six-page Green Arrow story titled Green Arrow's Alien Ally by Ed Heron and Lee Elias. And try saying that title seven times fast. Green Arrow's Alien Ally. I don't know about you, but my mouth doesn't always work that well. But speaking of Green Arrow, I recently picked up the Showcase Presents Green Arrow trade, and while I haven't gotten to this, this particular Green Arrow story yet, I've been more or less enjoying the trade so far. Um, I'm really only about a quarter of the way into it, I guess. But the Green Arrow stories, they're not nearly as creative or inventive as Superman or Batman from this time period. But they are short, six-page stories, so they make for quick reads, and, you know, they're, they're pretty enjoyable for what they are. The Emerald Archer podcast has covered a lot of these Silver Age Green Arrow stories, as well as the more modern stuff. And that's hosted by Ed and Nick Moore, and comes out, eh, once a month or so. They, they don't have a, a precisely regular uh, schedule, but they every three or four weeks they put out an episode. So if you want to know more about the Silver Age Green Arrow be sure to check out their show. Um, Ad-wise, there's not a lot to speak of. The most standout to me is the full-page ad for Superman Annual No. 2, which is an all-villains issue, and reprints the first appearances of Brainiac, Metallo, Titano, Bizarro, and a couple of other villains that you've probably never heard of unless you're, you know, hip-deep in the Silver Age Superman. But speaking of other books, now it's time for one of my favorite things to do, and that's head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com. Fire up the time machine and see what else was on the stands. First up is Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 49, which is a rare crossover issue, I guess you could call it, as the first story in the book features a guest appearance by Congo Bill and Congorilla who was a character who had a really long run as Superman's neighbor in the pages of Action Comics. Um, And that feature lasted, uh, that feature in that book, lasted from the early 40s until the very late 50s. In fact, I would have to look it up, but he might have just moved out of action shortly before this story was published, because he was in action, like I said, until 1959 or 1960, And then he moved over to being a backup in Adventure Comics for a year or so when the feature was dropped altogether. Uh, But next up is Batman number 136, which has the dynamic duo squaring off against the Joker. 
One of The Flash's most well-known villains, Captain Boomerang, makes his debut in The Flash number 117. And as I recall, he was one of the last of The Flash's, you know, big four or five villains to make his debut. So that character's definitely firing on almost all cylinders at this point. And as the sort of looked at as the character that kicked off the Silver Age, you know, it's that's another important milestone to mark. And over in Detective Comics number 286, we get an appearance by Batwoman. Not her first appearance, though, as she'd been around for, I think, four or five years at this point. And next up is one of the biggest books of the month, Justice League of America number 2, Secret of the Sinister Sorcerers. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, DC's line has now moved fully, or or nearly so, into the Silver Age. And the JLA's existence and having their own title is a huge, huge part of that. But finally is Adventure Comics number 279, with a Superboy story notable for being the first appearance of White Kryptonite, a form of kryptonite deadly to all plant life, regardless of planetary origin. So that's it. Another amazing adventure of the world's finest. I'm not really sure if I would call this amazing. Outer spacey, I guess. Anyway, next episode, if everything goes to plan, I'll be joined by another special guest. But even if I'm on my own, you can count on the fact that the episode will have both Superman and Batman goodness. And me, because I'm always here. Unless Bizarro shows up again, which... Yeah. But that's it for now. Be sure to send your thoughts, comments, questions, and checks payable to cash to michael at greatcrypton.com, and I will talk to you next time. Goodbye. It was a slow day, and the sun was beating on the soldiers by the side of the road. There was a bright light, a shattering of shop windows, the bomb in the baby carriage was wired to the radio. These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is the long distance call. Thanks for listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, 
featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. It's a turnaround jump shot. It's everybody jump starts. Every generation throws a hero up the pop charts. Medicine is magical and magical is art. Think of the boy in the bubble and the baby with the battle in heart. And I believe these are days. Lasers in the jungle. Lasers in the jungle somewhere. Staccato signals of constant information. A loose affiliation of millionaires and billionaires and babies. These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is the long distance call. The way the camera follows us in slow mode. The way we look to us all. Oh yeah. The way we look to a distant constellation that's dying in the corner of the sky. These are the days of miracle and wonder. And don't cry, baby. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. song for this episode was The Boy in the Bubble, from Paul Simon's classic 1986 album, Graceland. If you like this or other music heard in the show, well, there might be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there's only one way to show your support for the artist, and that's by buying the music. And the best way to do that is by visiting 2TrueFreaks.com. Click on the banner in the upper left corner of the site and be redirected to Amazon.com. Buy an MP3 or physical copy of the song, and Two True Freaks will get a little kickback on every purchase. So not only will you get good tunes, but you'll be helping out some of the hardest working folks in podcasting. And best of all, it won't cost you anything extra. It's come at last. Freeze. Freeze. Ice. Freeze. Ice. Winter fiber. Frozen. Ice. Freeze. Winter ice. Ice. Freeze. Winter. Winter. Freeze. Cold. Frosty.